Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7. We have a special program for you today. We have Michael Hogan with us. He's out of Guadalajara, Mexico. But before we hear from a fine poet, fine writer, Michael Hogan, let's go with a little bit of Waylon Jennings. I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 but I am still alive I was a sailor I was born upon the tide With the sea I did abide I sailed a schooner around the Horn of Mexico I went aloft to furl the mainsail in a blow and when the yards broke off, they said that I got killed But I'm living still I was a dam builder Across the river deep and wide Where steel and water did collide A place called Boulder on the wild Colorado I slipped and fell into the wet concrete below They buried me in that great tomb that knows no sound But I'm still around I'll always be around Around and around and around I fly a starship across the universe divide And when I reach the other side I'll find a place to rest my spirit if I can Perhaps I may become a highwayman again Or I may simply be a single drop of rain but I will remain I'll be back again And again And again And again And again And again Michael Hogan, welcome to Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7. How are things in Guadalajara, Mexico? Well, hi, Henry. Uh, good to hear your voice. Uh, we just had an earthquake last night, uh, not too far from here, 7.0. So we're lucky we're, we're hooked up with communications. Uh, I'm just happy everything turned out all right. It was a little bit, a little bit unsettling. Well, we're delighted to have you on the program. 
and take care down there. Uh, I've visited with you a number of times, so I know that country and the geography. So first question we always like to ask on this uh, program, Michael, where are you from? Well, originally, uh, Henry, I'm from Newport, Rhode Island, um, small small town uh, in, in, in the southern Rhode Island. Uh, used to be the home of uh, the the uh, destroyer Atlantic uh, destroyer fleet uh, back in the in the fifties and early sixties when I was growing up, and also of course the home to the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and, and the Astors who all had their summer mansions there. We'll talk a little bit about your life growing up there. I know you have a new book out. Uh, talk a little bit about that book because it talks about your growing up in Newport. Yeah, well, it's called Newport: A uh, Writer's Beginnings, and it's about uh, growing up in the in the Fifth Ward, which was the Irish section of of, of uh, Newport, the Irish Catholic section. And uh, so there's you know quite a bit in there about uh, you know, about what that uh, you know that uh, tradition is. Uh, Irish Catholicism and how that has changed over the years. Um, the the town was also the uh, the summer White House for Dwight D Eisenhower and then later for um, for uh, for President Kennedy. So I had an opportunity to to meet both of them while I was there. As a matter of fact, uh, Eisenhower had his uh, summer White House on the on the naval base, and I was dating the daughter of the commander of the naval base. So I got to see Ike almost every day, uh, you know, during the summer. So that was that was quite a treat. Um, and then uh, I also write a lot in the book about about my early influences, you know, as a writer. Then who were some of your influences? Well, my grandfather, who was an Irish immigrant, he came over uh, during the revolution, uh, and. Uh, Lost his wife and uh, raised raised my mother and two other daughters uh, by himself. Uh, he was extremely articulate. He only had a sixth grade education, but he was extremely well read. Uh, loved loved poetry and loved all the speeches of the of the Irish rebels and so on and so forth, which he could recite from memory. And uh, uh, I, I guess through him, I I, I learned you know to love uh, storytelling. Uh, most of my poetry does have a narrative, a narrative a streak to it, and I think, you know, I think that's that's mainly uh, his influence. Michael, we like to ask on poets and writers, WEHC ninety point seven. Do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? Well, the most traumatic thing I remember about about writing is we used to we used to sit around at night. Um, you know, this was before television really kind of caught on. There were one or two programs we watched. Uh, Bishop uh, Fulton J. Sheehan, uh, "Life is, is is Worth Living," and and I think Dragnet, and maybe maybe one or two variety shows. But most of the time, you know, in the evening we'd sit around and read, uh, you know, to each other. And one of the books we loved to read was uh, "Best Loved Poems of the American People." And each one would take, you know, would take a poem and, and read it and dramatize it and so on and so forth. So I, you know, I was really attracted to poetry very early on, plus my, you know, plus my grandfather's influence. And I began writing my own verses when I was about 13, 12 or 13. And uh, I remember I wrote one. Uh, it's, it's, it's lost to history now. But it was a poem about uh, a friend of my father's with whom I'd worked uh, over the summer doing landscaping work. And he was a gardener at one of the estates in Newport. And he drank half a pint of Seagram's whiskey for lunch every day in the potting shed. uh, He's a decent guy and a good boss, but also probably an alcoholic. 
Anyway, I wrote what I thought was a sympathetic portrait of the gardener's lost youth, and I imagined how he was disappointed in love and tried to drink his life away. And uh, it went something like, so there he is, each noon, mid-broken pots, lifting bottle to hungry mouth and not to bring forth joy or launch a party here, but to forget the past, outlive despair. Anyway, um, my, my father found a draft of the, of the poem, <laughs> of the doggerel, uh, by my desk, and he, and, he, and, he, and he read it. And he says, you know, this isn't funny, Michael. This is not something you use your gifts for to hurt and belittle other people. I'm really disappointed in you. Well, I had no intention of hurting or belittling, you know, but I didn't want to argue with my dad, and I understood, you know, you know what he was saying. Um, but I realized, you know, that good intentions could be just as deadly um, to creativity as active censorship, and even those that love us the most uh, could eviscerate our our products of imagination. So I tended to be much more secretive uh, with my writing uh, as 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 I went into adolescence. And uh, but I still, you know, I still uh, never forgot the lesson that that words are powerful and that they can they can hurt. Well, I, I enjoyed reading your book, and thank you so much for sharing a copy with me. And I, I, what did you learn from tennis? I'm just going to drop this in because I love the tennis story. The, the tennis story? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I grew up uh, in, in a town that was essentially you know, upper class, but it had changed a little bit with the Navy uh, during the war. Uh, the Navy wanted to keep it had an, an officer training uh, corps there, an officer training school, and to keep the officers in shape after after they they, they finished their court their 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 courses, they built these tennis courts. So after the war ended, these tennis courts became public, you know, public tennis courts. So I got to play, uh, you, you know, tennis uh, very very early on, and I uh, had a young, at that time, an uh, army colonel. Who uh, who took me under his wing and taught me you know taught me the game and uh, he taught me a number of things he taught me you know how to how to uh, be honorable uh, you know not to call shots uh, out that were in he, he taught me how to be patient uh, he taught me how to uh, uh, how to um, lose with dignity when I was faced with a stronger opponent than or an older opponent than I was. Um, and I guess the gift he gave me most was that that uh, you know that it, it was it was something I could do the rest of my life. You know, I could uh, I could play wherever I was. Uh, um, so you're still pl- you're still playing down yeah, here, Michael? Play, right? I still play on the average of twice a week. I've been playing now for I guess what fifty fifty five years or so. Right. And. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, because I've traveled a lot for the State Department and the Office of Overseas Schools, I played tennis in about 37 different countries. So, well, that's well. Now let's talk a little bit about. We, you have some very fine writings, and of course, I want to talk a little bit about Irish soldiers of Mexico. And I remember you gave me a copy of that book in Guadalajara once. And I talk a little bit about that, and then I think they made a movie into it. Yeah, they did. Um, well. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, I made some discoveries that, that there was an Italian, uh, an Irish battalion that fought uh, on the Mexican side during the Mexican War. And there was very little in, in, um, in, in U.S. history 
at all about it. You know, there wasn't even a footnote in U.S. history about it. And uh, in 1990, I had an opportunity to go to Mexico to teach on a two-year contract. And I thought, well, this would be a good time to kind of investigate that. And, and uh, I did. And in the process, uh, what I was going to do was write a historical novel. And in the process, I discovered I didn't know enough to write a historical novel. And uh, after, after a year or so of, of, of uh, scratching out an attempt at a novel, I decided to just uh, you know, put that to one side and uh, to do research on the history of this a battalion called the St. Patrick's Battalion, which well, fought on the Mexican side during the war. Well, it's certainly become—go ahead. Yeah, so I went to all the battlefields, uh, you know, I, and, and of course in the process I had to learn Spanish, but learn Spanish well enough so I could translate, uh, you know, uh, 19th century documents. Well, it ended up, it, it, it took me six years of, of research to complete the book, and in the process I also worked on my on my doctorate in uh, Latin American history, so, so it was a, a long process. And they made a movie the out of it. Came, yeah, the book finally came out, it... it uh, it resulted in two documentaries. One was an award-winning documentary in, in Europe, and the other was a film called One Man's Hero, starring Tom Berenger. And uh, then the book went out of print um, in, in, in 2001 because of the, uh, uh, of the assault on the, on the Twin Towers in New York. They changed all kinds of uh, rules regarding you know, books being shipped from other countries and so on and so forth. And, and, and my publisher, the University of Guadalajara, now had to go through a... Uh, a, a U.S. Uh, a middleman, and, and, and decided they didn't want to do that because there wasn't enough profit in it, so they let the book go out of print. So it wasn't until about a year and a half ago we put it back in print uh, through through Amazon and the Kindle and so on and so forth, and uh, revised it and updated it and put you know new color maps in and so on and so forth. So it's had a second life now. That's great. Our soldiers of Mexico. Now let's talk a little bit about your poetry. You have a new poetry book out, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it and read some poetry for us, okay? Okay, thank you. Um, well, I began writing poetry seriously and publishing in, in, in the late, well, the mid, the mid, I guess, 72, 73. And, uh, I was fortunate. I, I had, uh, you know, that was a time when there were lots of small presses out there and lots of uh, you know, little magazines. As a matter of fact, uh, COSMEP, the Committee on Small Magazines and Publications, was very, very active. The National Endowment for the Arts was very active. In 1975, I received the, the National Endowment for the Arts uh, a Fellowship for Creative Writing. Um, and uh, over the years, I've published a lot of, you know, chapbooks and, and, and uh, smaller books with, with uh, you know, with small presses, with university presses, with Unicorn Press and uh, Greenfield Review Press and so on and so forth in New York. So you well, just this past year, yeah. Okay, I'm, uh, we got a great producer here, Richard Graves, and we're watching the clock. And I want to be sure to get uh, some of your poetry on now. This new book is the title of it is. It's called Winter Solstice: A Selected Poems, 1975-2012. And they can get that on Amazon, right? You can get that on Amazon. It's a compilation of of about uh, I guess uh, sixteen. You know, or so uh, chat books and, and also some unpublished uh, work as well. Would you like me to read a couple? Oh, we'd love to hear from you. This is Michael Hogan, and this is Henry McCarthy on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7. Thank you, Henry. 
Well, the first one I'd like to read, uh, I'd like to read two if we have time, and that's okay with Richard. Sure, go for it. Uh, great. Uh, the first one is, is called The Condor, and uh, you'll, you'll see my grandfather in there. And, and, and also a vocabulary word I wanted to include, I wanted to include in a, in a poem that I never had before. Uh, it's called uh, Lugubrious. So anyway, The Condor. Dark and lugubrious, his eyes signify no intent beyond brooding. All day he has been poised on thermals, as if the land would rise like a hand and say, Blessings, blessings. The condor, observant as a child who watches the sidewalk for a dollar dropped by chance along the way to school, waits. The dollar is never there. It is a story like the one they tell prisoners of a world outside the walls to keep them simple with hope. Now he's past the rift valley, empty of game, and descends smooth as a spent bullet to the bay. He feeds there on salmon spilled by the fishing boats. It is always less than he wanted. He dreams of a freshly killed goat on a hill near Monterey, a calf, a yearling torn by rocks or the teeth of wild dogs but it is always something less. Today, salmon. Tomorrow, a rabid skunk. A coyote dropped by fever. The Apache said the bird made thunder by beating its wings. The Apache said lightning was born in the condor's eyes. I tell my son the old legends, but think instead of losses. Think of the doomed Irish days of my grandfather and the miles he drifted. His eyes red after a fifth of Jameson as this great lost searcher's looking out at the world always one which gave less than the dreams. But he told me the legends, how there was once a people whose poetry thundered on Tara's hills, whose eyes flashed lightning when the world was young and no man could measure the breath of a life. It was before the factories, before the wife dead with the third child and the child stillborn. It was before the friends in prison, the dole, the immigration. I sometimes think, he said, that life is fine unless you stay too long at it. We call the condor an endangered species and like the sound of that captured phrase. But the condor, his wings transcendent as old memory, beat Alexander, Alexander, with no other worlds to conquer. Oh, that's a beautiful poem. This is Michael Hogan we're listening to from Guadalajara, Mexico, here on Poets and Writers. Michael, do you have another poem for us? Well, I thought I'd, I might read you one that's more recent. Well, you uh, give you a little idea of what's happening in, in Mexico well, right now. Good deal. And I do have to add this one quick thing about your grandfather. I know you said when he started telling you the same stories over again, you knew he was he was getting short of memory. I, I just read that in one of your poems today. So, yeah. Okay, go ahead and share the next poem. Okay, this one, as you know, there's, there's you know, quite a bit of violence going on in Mexico right now, but at the same time, there's, there's another life, and I wanted, to, I wanted to put both those things in a poem if I could and give someone a sense of what that might be like. It's called Mexican Spring. It is the time of the jacaranda, when streets are violet carpets and vendors call ayelotes in the early evening. No reason to think this could not last forever, this interval between burning buses and tortured death, this space in the calendar when the earth breathes and every tree shines with its own inner light. When darkness comes, we retreat behind walls. 
we hear the staccato bursts of machine guns, muffled thumps of grenades, and interminable screams of sirens as silent victims are carried down the periferico to Hospital Civil. But then morning again, crystalline dew on grass and the privets, a fluorescence of roses, splash of old fountains and gardens and a rooster's call. Heedlessly, it all returns, this sweet, singular life, the bougainvilles, bracts of burgundy and tangerine, and the copper flash in the beak of a crow as he carries a spent cartridge home to his hidden nest. Oh, thank you so much, Michael Hogan. And I know you know so much about uh, Mexico and Guadalajara. And I remember one of your short stories on the street people of Guadalajara, and I love that one very much. Uh, wanna, thank you, Henry. I want to ask you here in closing, I want you to share a little bit about uh, your advice. You've taught a lot of writers, and you've helped them get into the field of writing, and you're an outstanding teacher. So talk a little bit about uh, tips on writing and getting into it. Well, one of the things that I've always found of writers who, who I've come to appreciate and enjoy is their persistence. You know, I remember once, uh, you know, someone asked William Stafford, he was in his 80s, maybe 83 or 84, they said, are you still writing poetry? And he said, well, of course. You know, what, what, why would you stop? <laughs> and, you know, um, that that kind of, of attitude, I think, is very infectious. And having having that kind of teacher around, uh, you know, is, is uh, such a wonderful thing because that's that's kind of, you know, my model, you know, as a teacher and also as a writer. Uh, and he also said, you know, don't worry, you know, try to get the I, try to get the ego out of it. And, 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 and just write, you know, write to your least common denominator if you have to. But but just write, and then and then in the process of rewriting, you, you know, you'll discover, you know, perhaps uh, something else if 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 it needed to be written. Um, I was thinking, you know, talking about great great teachers and so on. You have one you know, besides yourself, uh, right there at Emory and Henry uh, College, uh, Felisa Mitchell. Oh yes, also. you do know Felisa Mitchell, and I did say hi to her for you. You guys have known each other a long time. A long time, and, you know, we both combined poetry and teaching, and we both uh, worked for a number of years um, correcting exams together for the uh, college board, the advanced placement uh, exams for, for, for English literature. Well, Michael, you have to such... Go ahead. And I think, you know, she's a fine example of someone who has integrated both the creative life and the teaching life as well. So, and, well, we won't dwell on that because you've had so many of experiences. And I was just reading one of your essays today about the time when you used to travel. And we're going to have to wrap it up here. But you used to travel with, I believe it was Allen Ginsberg and the time he kissed you. But I thought that was, a, <laughs> that was an interesting time of your life. You, I didn't realize you were traveling with some of the Beats. Yeah, we were at a conference, and and, uh, and actually we were being filmed. I'd only been married about a year at that time. So we were um, we were in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe, at the time, and uh, I was with Diane Wachowski and Allen Ginsberg, and we were all in a circle with a bunch of students who had, who had come to hear, hear a seminar on, on contemporary poetry. And Diane Wachowski was kind of holding forth on, 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 on some feminist issue, and I, I could see the kids' eyes kind of glazing over, and I turned to Alan, and I said, maybe, Alan, you know, we should, we should interrupt and change the subject. And, uh, you know, so why don't you tell her? 
And he goes, why don't you show some chutzpah and tell her yourself? So I said, uh, uh, Diane, maybe we could change the subject and talk about uh, you know something else. And just as I did that, just as I said that, the camera switched from Diane Wachowski to me, and then Alan goes, Mazel tov, and kisses me on the mouth in front of the camera. So anyway, that and was... And your wife saw that. My, my wife saw it, of course. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, when you're only married a year, that's, that's, that's not a particularly good thing for your first road trip. <laughs> well, you certainly have had some wonderful experiences, some very deep and meaningful experiences, and we could talk about your experiences and out west and on and on and on. But I want to thank you so much for being on the program today, Michael Hogan. Thank you, Henry. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Okay, and now let's put on some Waylon Jennings, and this is Henry McCarthy saying, I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. So here we go, and thanks again, Richard Graves and Michael Hogan, for all your great poetry. Her beauty cut just like a knife He was a banker from Macon Old lover all his life He bought her a mansion on a mountain With a formal garden and a lot of land But paradise became her prison That Georgia banker was a jealous man Every time you talk about her you can see the fire in his eyes You'd say, I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my rose in paradise He hired a man to tend the garden To keep an eye on her while he was gone Some say they ran away together See that gardener left alone Now the banker is an old man That mansion's crumbling down Sits all day and stares at the garden Not a trace of her was ever found Every time he talks about her you can see the fire in his eyes He says, I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my rose in paradise Now there's a rose out in the garden Its beauty cuts just like a knife They say it even grows in the wintertime Blooms in the dead of the night 